Jeremiah 22. This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne. Uh, you, your officials and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is uh, just and right. Rescue you from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, the kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. For this is what the Lord says about the palace of the king of Judah. Though you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, I will surely make you like a wasteland, like towns not inhabited. I will send destroyers against you, each man with his weapons, and they will cut up your vine cedar beams and throw them into the fire. People from many nations will pass by the city and will ask one another, why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord, their God, and have worshipped and served other gods. Do not weep for the dead, king, or mourn like that loss. Rather, weep bitterly for him who is exiled, because he will never return, nor see his native land again. For this is what the Lord says about Shalom, son of Josiah, who succeeded his father as king of Judah, but has gone from this place. He will never return. He will die in the place where they have led him captive. He will not see this land again. Woe to him who builds uh, his palace by unrighteousness, <clears throat> uh, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, but paying them for the, their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes a large windows in it, panels it with cedar and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to be more, uh, to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just. So all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression, oppression and extortion. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him, alas, my brother, alas, my sister. They will not mourn for him, alas, my master, alas, my splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey, dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out. Let your voice be heard in Bashan. Cry out from Abram. For all your allies are crushed. Warn you. I warned you when you felt secure, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth. You have not obeyed me. The wind will drive all your shepherds away and your allies will go into exile. Then you will be ashamed and disgraced because of all your weak, uh, wickedness. You who lived in Lebanon, who are nestled in cedar buildings, how you will groan when uh, pangs 
uh, come upon you, pain like that of our woman in labor. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right, and <clears throat> I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those uh, who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave birth to you into another country where neither of you was born, and there you both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man, Jehurchin, a despised broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? O land, O land, land, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his life. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule any more in Judah. Hey, everybody. Here is what I want to know. Why do people constantly see Jesus' face in things? You know, when people see Jesus' face in a cloud or in their pizza or something like that, because I tell you, it happens a lot. People see Jesus' face in a piece of toast. So you can see in there in the bottom right-hand corner of the toast there, it's actually pretty impressive, isn't it? Or, or concrete floors. That one's kind of a more, more of a modern art Jesus, that one. Or even frying pans. I think that one is incredibly impressive. In fact, it almost seems too good to be true, that one, doesn't it? It, it kind of makes me wonder if maybe they, they were moving the fat around the frying pan to get the grease into place. In fact, some pictures I found did look decidedly fishy. I mean, really, Jesus in your coffee cup. That to me, that one looks more like Jesus in my Photoshop or Jesus in my potato chip. Again, I kind of think maybe there's a little bit of technology involved in that one. Although this next one does claim to be dinky dye. It's actually from a pizza shop right here in Australia. This pizza came out of the pizza oven at Posh Pizza in Brisbane. And the owner, a lady named Marie Phelan said, I can definitely say this is not a fake. In fact, she said after she made that pizza, she had this run of incredibly good luck. Lots of good things happened to her, including avoiding getting a parking ticket while she was parked in a loading zone. See, even Jesus hates parking regulations. I would say it probably did bring her some good because she sold that pizza on eBay for $153. <laughs> Why is it that people constantly feel the need to see Jesus' face in things? Well, according to the neurobiologist Sophie Scott, of uh, University College London. She said people see Jesus' face because basically they want to see him. She said being able to see Jesus' face in toast is telling you more about what's happening with your expectations and how you are interpreting the world based on your expectations rather than anything that's necessarily in the toast. In other words, it's all just wishful thinking. Now, of course, None of us 
would ever fall for that kind of thing, would we? I doubt that there is anyone out there in Hunter Bible Church land this morning who's gazing into the face of Jesus in your Sunday morning pancake. We're way too cluey for that, aren't we? Or are we? Could it be that we actually do something like this all the time? Not seeing Jesus' face in a pizza or a piece of toast, but in the Old Testament. Could it be that Jesus is not actually promised in the Old Testament, but we just conveniently find him there? We insert Jesus into the Old Testament where he's not actually promised at all. It's a scary thought, isn't it? Is Jesus really promised in the Old Testament? Well, today we're going to put that idea to the test. Today's passage is all about the idea of kings and kingship and the kings of Judah. And it can actually be a little bit confusing because throughout the passage, five separate kings get mentioned. So in chapter 21, verse 1, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Peshur, son of Malchijah. So there's Zedekiah. And then in chapter 22, we're told about a dead king, who is Josiah. And then there's Shalom, the son of Josiah, and Jehoiakim, and Jehoiachin. So five separate kings are all mentioned, and it can actually be kind of hard to get them straight in your head, especially because they all have two names. There's their birth name, and then there's their ruling name. But here's how it all works. Josiah was the king at the start of the book. And remember, Josiah was a good king. He's the one who found the law and obeyed the law, and he ruled for quite a long time. But then he died, and his youngest son, Shalom, became the king of Judah. And he took the ruling name, Jehoahaz. And Shalom was was not a good king at all, completely ungodly. And in fact, he only lasted three months before he was taken off to Egypt by the pharaoh. And his brother Eliakim became the king. Now, Eliakim took the royal name Jehoiakim, and he lasted a little bit longer. He lasted 11 years before the king of Babylon got to him. And then Eliakim's son, Jeconiah, became the king, and he took the ruling name Jehoiachin. And he only lasted three months before the king of Babylon took him as well. And the king of Babylon made his uncle, one of Josiah's other sons, Mataniah the king, and Mataniah called himself Zedekiah. And he lasted 11 years before the exile. And so at this point in the book of Jeremiah and in Judah's kingdom, the kingship is actually a bit of a revolving door. Lots of kings with lots of names. It's all a little bit confusing. But really, they all have one thing in common. Apart from Josiah, they're all evil. There is not a good king among the lot of them. So look what God says to the whole royal house in chapter 21, verse 11. Moreover, say to the royal house of Judah, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you, house of David. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you've done. Burn with no one to quench it. You see what these kings are like? There is no justice in Judah. People are being robbed. They're being oppressed. The poor are being downtrodden. Or look down in chapter 22, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord. 
to you, King of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who's been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. See, again, God says there is no justice in the kingdom of Judah. People are being oppressed. They're being robbed. Widows and orphans and foreigners, the people who are most vulnerable, are being subject to violence. Innocent blood is being shed. Jehoiakim even exploits his own people. He gets his own people to build his grand palace, but he doesn't actually pay them for their labor. See, while other passages in Jeremiah talk about idolatry, and it is all the way through, this passage actually hones in on something else. This passage hones in on injustice as the big sin of the kings. The poor, the weak, the vulnerable are being oppressed. Judah is an unjust society because she has unjust kings. And you know, the fact that God hones in on that actually tells us a lot about God's values. God loves justice. God cares really deeply about truth and fairness and integrity. I mean, after all, God is the God who doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. That's built into his very name, the Lord. And in fact, when God built his nation, he enshrined justice at the very heart of the nation from the beginning. He said to them in the law, do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the word of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. You see, God cares deeply about the justice of his nation. And so when it came to the kings, the rulers, God measured them by the degree of justice that they brought. In fact, this is one of the things that really ought to irk Christians about how people measure governments in our day. Because by and large, we tend to measure our governments by economics, don't we? How is the economy going? What are interest rates like? What's the surplus? What's inflation like? Am I getting rich from this government? We measure everything in terms of dollars. I mean, haven't you seen reports on TV where they say things like, smoking costs the economy $3 billion every year, as if the economy is the only tragedy when it comes to something like smoking. But God says, no, you measure the government, you measure the ruler by the amount of justice they bring. Are the poor cared for or oppressed? Are the vulnerable protected or preyed upon? God cares about that. And in fact, so should we. And yet this is a really tricky and confusing thing for Christians, isn't it? Because... We're not sure how much we should care 
or how much we should do about all the injustice we see around us. Because we look at our society and we do see so much injustice, don't we? We look at our world and we see injustice and poverty where there shouldn't be. We look at our own country and we see things like indigenous incarceration rates, which are way beyond what they ought to be. We see the helpless being preyed upon, don't we? From the unborn to small children to the elderly. We see poverty in the third world. In the end, our society isn't that different to the kingdom of Judah. There's a lot of injustice. There is a lot of suffering. And we think, what should we do about that as Christians? What should Christians do about injustice in Australia and injustice in the rest of the world, suffering? Because one of the things we realise is Australia is different to Judah, isn't it? I mean, they were God's chosen nation. Australia is not. Judah represented God's kingdom. God was the true ruler of their nation. They were meant to be ruled by God's just law, but Australia is not that. Australia is a secular democratic nation where we elect parliamentarians. And so we can't go about recreating Israel, recreating Judah in Australia. It's not as if we can legislate to make Australia a Christian country somehow, can we? Especially because you need to realise God's plan for Australia and for his kingdom is not to turn Australia into a kingdom that replaces Judah. No, God's just kingdom centres on Jesus, doesn't it? And then Jesus' kingdom in heaven, not any one country. So when Jesus came, he didn't put an end to injustice, did he? No, when Jesus came, he died to pay for injustice. The fact is heaven is God's ultimate solution to injustice, not earth. We will never eradicate poverty here on earth. We will never eradicate injustice here on earth. We'll never end suffering here on earth. We have to wait for heaven for that. And this is where some Christians get deeply, deeply and unhelpfully confused because they think that bringing justice here on earth is what Christianity is all about. Ending poverty, ending racism, ending abuse. Those things become the great goal and purpose of Christianity. They become the mission and they are noble goals. They're great things, but they're not God's goals for here on earth. God's plan was for Jesus to die, to take us to a new kingdom without poverty, without racism, without abuse. God's plan was actually for Jesus to die to pay for the massive injustice that lives in my heart. Because that's the thing, isn't it? It's not just that there's injustice out there in the world. It's not just institutional. No, it's in here. I am unjust. I have been unjust to people. I've been unjust to God. And God is going to fix that injustice at some point. He's going to get around to me. And with Jesus, the wonderful news is he did. Jesus died to pay for my injustice. And he promises a future kingdom that is just and righteous and good in heaven.
And so our great message to the world is not, we have to fix this injustice. Now, our great message to the world is come to Jesus. Jesus died to pay for your injustice and he promises to take us to a place without pain, without suffering, without injustice. And yet that then raises the question, well, so does that mean that we do nothing about injustice here? Does that mean that we just close our eyes to all of the pain and all of the suffering that's happening around us here and now and just wait for heaven? Because instinctively we think, no, that can't be right, can it? God cares about injustice in his character. That is, justice isn't just good for Israel and Judah. Justice is good full stop because God himself is just. So can I suggest three things we Christians need to do about the injustice of the world around us? Three things. The first thing we need to do is tell people about God's ultimate solution to injustice. Christianity is not another band-aid in a world of pain. No, God's eternal answer to injustice is Jesus. Jesus came and he taught us what justice looks like. He died to pay for injustice. He changes us so that we'll become more like him and he will bring perfect justice in heaven. And so the cornerstone of a Christian response to injustice must be preaching the gospel. And we have to laser in on that. We have to hold to it. We have to be absolutely committed to it. But the second thing we can do is we can also work to bring about some justice here and now. We can bring some measure of justice, not because we're trying to turn Israel, uh, Australia into a new Israel, not because we, we think we'll ever eradicate it, but just because justice is good. And we have the opportunity. So we live in a rich country, which means that almost all of us have the money that can be used to bring about some measure of justice. We can use our money to reduce poverty. We can use our money to fight child slavery. We'll never fix it, but we can reduce the pain and suffering. In fact, we can do even better with organizations like Compassion that we saw a few weeks ago, because they'll preach the gospel even as they do reduce human suffering. But in fact, even non-Christian organizations will still bring about some justice and they're still worth serving. We can use our money. We can use our voices and our votes. Australia is a democracy and we get a say in how our countries run. And so we should use our voice and our vote in order to bring about justice. That is, when it comes to the election, don't just vote on the basis of what will be best for you. Don't just vote the way the rest of the world does. What will make me richer? No, use your vote to reduce pain and suffering. Vote on the basis of justice. That is, just because we can't bring final justice here, just because our big message and focus is Jesus, doesn't mean we can't achieve some small measure of justice. And every individual Christian should care about this. Now, as part of this, One of the big questions that occasionally people will ask, especially of me as our pastor is, should we as a church set up an organization in order to bring about justice, the small measure of justice that we can? Should we start a legal advocacy or should we start a soup kitchen? 
My thinking on this for a number of years now has been that that's not a good idea for two reasons. The first and the smaller reason is when churches start those organizations, they often lose focus on evangelism. That aid organization that the church starts overwhelms the evangelistic endeavor because it's always much more popular to preach to feed people than it is to preach to them. The world will thank you for one, they'll condemn you for the other. And so over time, one of the things that can naturally happen is this aid organization that we start overwhelms the church. That's the smaller reason. But the bigger reason for me is there are already great organizations that we should be out there supporting. That is, the problem of pain in our society is not that there aren't enough good organizations. The problem is the good organizations are under-supported. And when Christians start another one on top of the good ones that are already there, we rob those good organizations of the support and the people who could go about helping. That is, I would much rather see us joining organizations that are good, and helping them and doing it as groups of people together. If you're part of one, if you're already helping out in an organization that aims to reduce suffering, tell people about it in church. Invite them to join in doing it with you. And in fact, lots of people in our church are already doing this. And Wendy Daly, who is down at, uh, is down at the lake, did some great research for us on this. Get in touch if you want to find out more. So we preach the gospel. We bring some measure of justice where we can. The third thing that we must do is that Christians must be a community of justice ourselves. Hunter Bible Church must be a place of justice. Too often, churches have covered up sin and let justice fail. Too many lies, too much corruption, too much covering things up, too much silence, too much protecting our own. No, we want to be a church that is absolutely truthful, absolutely transparent. We want to confess sin quickly and openly. And so if you can see ways that our church is behaving in an unjust and unrighteous way, if you can see ways that we're hurting the vulnerable or protecting oppressors, then tell us. And I promise you that we will take it absolutely seriously. Because if Jeremiah shows us anything, it is that God hates injustice. And so in our passage, God promises two solutions to this injustice in Judah. He promises judgment on the kings, and then he promises new kings, and especially a new king who will bring justice. So in our passage, God promises justice, judgment, on each of the kings in return. Shalom had been taken off to Egypt and God says he will never return. He will die in the place they've led him captive. He will not see this land again. That's Shalom judged. Jehoiakim abused his own people and he used them to build his great grand palace and God says they will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother, alas, my sister, they will not mourn for him. Alas, my master, alas, his splendor. He'll have the burial of a donkey dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. So Jehoiakim will die unmourned by his own people. Jehoiachin felt secure in his cedar palace. 
But God says, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my royal hand, I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born and there you'll both die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. You see, God visits judgment on each of the unjust kings in turn. But he also promises something better. He promises a new age with better kings, and in fact, one king in particular. Have a look at the promises of Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you've scattered the flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you've done, declares the Lord. You see, God starts here by promising to judge the wicked kings. And it is interesting. He uses the title that really becomes the measuring stick for all human leadership. It's the idea of the shepherd. The shepherd really is the perfect image for a leader because it does carry authority. When you think about it, the shepherd actually carries a stick. He carries, he does rule his flock, but he rules them for their benefit. In verse 2, he cares for them. It's rule with the purpose of care. And because these kings have abused and, and scattered rather than cared for, God's going to bestow judgment on them. But more than that, look what God says next. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and I'll bring them back to their pasture where they'll be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they'll no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. See, God promises there that he's going to be the ultimate shepherd for his people. He was always Israel's true shepherd. He was always Israel's true king. And he says he's going to do that again. He's going to bring them back from all the places they've been scattered. And part of how he's going to do that is by bringing new shepherds, new kings, good kings this time. Kings who will tend the flock instead of abusing them. But more than just kings plural... It seems to, the promise here seems to narrow down to one king. Because God says, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. See the move there from the plural kings, shepherds, to the singular? God's promise seems to focus in on one king who will come from David's line and he will reign wisely and he will reign justly. And in fact, both Israel and Judah will be saved. The nation will be reunited and made whole again. And his name will be the Lord, our righteous saviour. It's actually a play on the name Zedekiah. Zedekiah meant the Lord is righteous, Yahweh is righteous, but he was anything but righteous as a king. 
And so God is going to send another king who this time will be righteous. He will bring God's righteousness. And here's where we circle back to the question we started with. Is it wishful thinking to see Jesus here? Is it wishful thinking to see Jesus as the king from David's line who will bring wisdom and justice, who'll bring God's righteousness? Is it wishful thinking? Well, the New Testament writers didn't think so. Matthew didn't think so. Because when Matthew lays out Jesus' family tree with all of his connections, all of his family connections, his genealogy, Matthew locates Jesus in the line of David. Jesus is in the family of Josiah and his sons. That line continued after the exile with Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, and it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Matthew looked back to Jeremiah and saw Jesus as the promise, the one that Jeremiah was promising here. Of course, more important than that, though, Jesus was, when you looked at him, exactly the kind of king Jeremiah promised, wasn't he? Jesus was wise. Jesus was just. I mean, when you think about it, Jesus could have been a far worse tyrant than Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin ever were, couldn't he? Imagine what Jesus could have done with the power that he had. Jesus could have ruled nations. Jesus could have overthrown armies. Jesus could have bound all of humanity in chains if he wanted to. He could still be doing it now. Remember when they come to arrest him in the garden, he says, can't I command legions of my father's angels? Jesus could have ruled as a tyrant. But what was he like? Well, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew deliberately picks his language there, doesn't he? Jesus is not like the evil shepherds of Judah. He doesn't prey on the sheep. He sees people as helpless and harassed, as sheep needing a shepherd, and he has compassion on them. And he heals them. And he feeds them. And he teaches them. Jesus fits the mold of Jeremiah perfectly. I mean, think about it. Where do you see this better than in Jesus' death for us? Judah's kings slaughtered their people. They abused and they exploited them. Jesus was slaughtered for his people. He gave up his life for us. Jesus died the most unjust death imaginable that we might live in his just and perfect kingdom. Jesus really is our righteousness, isn't he? Jeremiah promised a king called the Lord is our righteousness. And Jesus really is that, isn't he? 
Because when Jesus died, he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. When we stand before God, we won't stand with our own goodness, our own justice, our own righteousness. We will stand cloaked in Jesus' righteousness. We won't point to our own goodness or obedience. We will point to Jesus' goodness and his obedience. Jesus really is our righteousness from God. You see, it's not wishful thinking to find Jesus in Jeremiah 23. It's divine planning. God promised Jesus 600 years before he was even born. He promised a wise, just, compassionate shepherd who would be his people's righteousness. And he promised him beforehand so that we would recognize him in the face of Jesus. Now, you might be wondering how Jeremiah 22 verse 30 fits into that, Jehoiachin's uh, curse. The answer is Haggai chapter 2 verse 23, when God reverses the curse on, um, on Jehoiachin's family. He even uses the same language as Jeremiah. But rather than wishful thinking, Jeremiah actually becomes the bedrock of our faith. Jeremiah 22 and 23 is part of the reason we love and worship Jesus. See, isn't it wonderful that we won't always live in an unjust world? Isn't it wonderful that we have a just God? Isn't it amazing that he sent a just king who died to satisfy God's just anger against us and who's now turning us into a people of justice? And who one day will bring a world of justice. Let's praise God for Jesus, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a God of justice, that you love justice. And we thank you that when Jesus came, he did the one thing that would eradicate injustice from the world forever. He died for it. We thank you that Jesus' death really is the promise of a new kingdom. It shows us how deeply you care about wrongdoing and judging it and eradicating it. And so we pray for Jesus to return. Please send Jesus back to take us to a world without pain, without suffering, without oppression. And please so work in our hearts that we so believe this that when we see pain and injustice in our world, we would long for your return, that we would long to see people rescued and then, then we would speak to people. We pray that in the meantime, you might help us to do some small measure of good while we can. We know it's not your final solution, but we pray that we might care about it the way you do. Help us to use our money, our voices, our vote, and we pray that we would be a people of justice. Please help our church to be entirely transparent, entirely truthful. May we never cover up sin or protect our own. May we never oppress those who are weak. We pray that we would be like you. We pray that we would be like our Lord Jesus Christ who came, who was perfectly just and compassionate and so loved justice that he died to bring it. Amen.